sitting in a seat in chapel at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, just staring ahead, looking at the fresco painting that had been done on the wall of the chapel in front of me, and the worship leader had finished singing, and the speaker for our weekly chapel had come up front, and this. I see Jesus and in the fresco, and they, he's got a bag in his hand and seed, and, and I'm listening to the uh, speaker and thinking about the fresco on the wall, about Jesus going out and sowing seed on on the ground and sowing the word of God, and sort of felt this reminiscent aspects happening inside of me while I was listening about what had just recently occurred. I, I was there to receive uh, and do my time with them for a doctorate, doctoral program of ministry, and was reflecting while I was listening on sitting in the class with the other pastors and leaders as they were expressing their calling because the um, the dean was in the class with us and had asked each one of us to give an understanding or tell about how our calling was and uh, while I'm listening to the other pastors go about the room explaining how God had called them into ministry I was sort of starting to dread uh, relating my own call uh, as it sounded so wild and different about meeting the Holy Spirit and flying jet aircraft and being called from Takuna Alam to restore all things and it just and after that I, I felt so awkward being in the middle of all of this and with the other students and having the background of a promise that the world was going to see millions upon millions change through our ministry and these experiences with God that just seem so out there. And uh, while I was sitting there, I was thinking about what the dean who had sat down with me and said to me, uh, Carol, I think you're in the wrong program. You know, um, every once in a while, God elects someone specifically for a place in the church that is unusual. And he said, I... I get the impression from your relating of your calling that God has called you out and set you apart and I don't think you're going to find what you're looking for in this doctor of ministry program. I, honestly, if you're going to go on and get a doctorate, I would rather you go get a PhD. And uh, your work that you're receiving from the Lord is not something that's been done before. And it's new ground. And he was so kind to me because I was, I was really struggling and part of my struggle had been, I didn't understand what had happened to Kara and I and our children and I didn't understand these experiences in light of what was going on in our life. It's hard to make sense of our life in light of other people's lives, especially other pastors who I value, they're lovely, godly men I was in that room with. and it. You know, it almost sounded just so out of place and 
what I was trying to relate out of, you know, just honesty. You know, to say the least, I was a bit troubled. One, I had decided maybe I should go to the Doctor of Ministry program at Gordon-Conwell because I received my master's degree there. And I could take this galactic progeny, I could take this ministry, the Melchizedek Order, and if I could get some academics to, and other PhDs and theology doctors to get behind what we were doing, it could build some credibility. And from that credibility, we could take this ministry and launch it. And I think that I'm feeling the pain of that because now the, the dean, the doctor of theology, who has a doctor in theology, is telling me, you're out of place even here. And you need to go uh, into a PhD program and, and write your doctorate, write a dissertation. And I am thinking, you know, I'd, I mean, really, do I want to go, because I'm in, Karen and I are in the middle of pastoring our fellowship, and do I really want to go and go take a, a program, because I'm going to have to learn, probably reinitiate myself in the Hebrew, the Greek, I'm possibly going to have to learn Latin and German to be able to perform a doctoral program, and do I want to spend the next five years shut up in a library studying? You know, I feel this kind of check because I, I realize, and as so many do, that that I may be pursuing a doctorate to build credibility in the eyes of men, but our credibility comes from God, and that I, I didn't need to do that, and here I am now sitting in this seat, going through all of this in my mind, and listening as the speaker says, out of Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy uh, wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. You have to understand that while I'm in the sense of trying to build a foundation for credibility, I, I literally think that day I was running on an amber light with gas. I, I think I had probably 50-something cents in my name. And just feeling the discouragement because I really want to take care of and the kids and I, I, I want to be a good provider and I want to protect my family and so I left there and uh, I think I barely made it back to um, Kara's family home in Monroe area and uh, she was there and she looks at me and she says you've got to do something and I can't deal with this anymore and I, I told her I was like you know you're not going to leave me are you and she says no I'm not going to leave you but Carol you know I need you uh, to, to find something from the Lord, you know, to help our family. And so I went upstairs and, uh, you know, I've had the thunder knocked out from under me because now the, the dean has told me, you know, this isn't where you're going to find what you're looking for. Um, my wife's needs and, and our finances and, I, you know, and just the social pressure, our family pressure and everything's just kind of coming at me. And, and I, I'm carrying this promise that, carry this ministry, carrying this promise for 
souls that God is going to cause a, a move. I, I relate that in a podcast called Erickson Stadium. You can listen to that. I relate why we left the Air Force in Takun Alam. Uh, I relate an experience that had happened in uh, the podcast called Eastern Prince. And, and I have all this background of these encounters with Jesus that are just, they're so real and so objectively true that to not to deny them, I would have to deny the Lord himself and that I, I just can't do it. So I went upstairs, I got down on my knees, I'm quivering, and I say to the Lord, I said, Lord, I need your help. I need a way to take care of my family and to and to also fulfill this ministry assignment. I'm, I refuse to let go. And uh, I've got to have a resolve, but I've got to have a way. And so I got down, I prayed, and the Holy Spirit, you know, when you get still and you're backed into a corner, and I just had to get still before him, I waited on him. And, and this is what he said to me. He said, frankly, you don't give enough away to live like you need to live. And I mean, I, this can't be God. I don't give enough away to live like you want to live. He's like, says it to me again you don't you don't give enough away to live like you want to live you're going to have to apply the principle of sowing and reaping for your own survival and this is going to be the only way you're going to be able to thrive in ministry now you have to understand what's going on our fellowship that we have i'm under conviction of the lord to not go and get other work Every time that I had made an attempt, whether in the blue-collar field or the white-collar field, I'm always get this, I'm pressed back by the Lord, and I can't get His grace, and I can't get Him to move in my life to allow me. I mean, I'll make job application after job application, try to get interviews. Nothing will work for, for me in this regard. And, and the, because of the pressure that we're undergoing as a fellowship, the, uh, the financial aspect of receiving from as a minister should and does many times from the offering and the tithe that come in continues to shrink and so um, I can't even see a way out and so now the Lord's telling me to give uh, money away and so I I leave from that moment I come down and I tell Kara you know she's not necessarily happy but there's a peace that settles over us she agrees with me that that is the word of the Lord and so we start this initiative. I just, I'm kind of like really aggressive. So I, I just ran up my giving to like 65%. And what is really interesting is what starts to take place after this. I start to see a resurgence, or not a resurgence, but a, a surge of finance starts to come in from different areas. We're not asking people. We don't do that we just pray and I've just given the money away privately as he had shared with me to give out of the Eastern Prince podcast you can hear how about that story there that Ezekiel relates about the Prince and Zadok and so the Lord had shared with us to take a large portion of our resources and give it to the Zadok priesthood and uh, ends up being that was Kirk Bennett with uh, Seventh Thunder's ministry and so we, you know, started that initiative, and and then we just started giving to all different kinds of ministries, and uh, because I'm just learning, so we're giving to the poor, we're giving to other churches, we're giving to uh, ministries that feed the poor, and ministries to help 
women who have been in prostitution and needed help and were being restored and to start really just blasting it out and and I saw a real change and and I started coming under some teaching and understanding from the Lord you know back at the fresco you know that the sower goes out to sow and that the Lord had really established through the Apostle Paul an understanding of what it meant to sow and reap and it spoke of in Galatians that whatsoever a man sows he therefore he shall also reap and uh, this became a real powerful a moment for me in my life because I didn't have an occupation so to speak in the in the work world and and I you know I'm in the pastorate and the income that's coming in to the services is not sufficient for what we needed as a family not even close I can remember many you know many weeks where we the Lord would challenge me to just give the we would, we would take the whole entire offering that would come in from the service and give the whole thing away. And, um, and I started to like learn something, and, and it's a part of what I really want to share with you today about finance. And before I get into this, I, I want to just lay a foundation for this because you know money is, well, it's spoke of a lot by the Lord and forgiveness. These are like two areas that are hit on a lot in the Gospels and the Epistles. And so there's a reason why. You know, first of all, it says of money, it says it is the money is the root of all kinds of evil. It also uh, is said in the Scriptures that you can't serve both God and mammon. You must hate the one and love the other. You can't serve both God and money. And so we can't put money ahead of the Lord. So much of what's going on today in our culture and our life and our economy and everything is so many people are, and I, I didn't realize how deeply ingrained this is into each one of us that are deeply ingrained into production and finance and and so this is really, this podcast, I think, is going to be a tremendous podcast for you. And so, first of all, I just want to lay a foundation for two different aspects because there's so much of that's been done damage in the church concerning what we call the prosperity or gospel or the health and wealth gospel. And I want to, before I introduce this material, I, I want to give this understanding about the prosperity gospel and that that is not what I'm engaging with here and I want to I want to tell you why first of all I do believe deeply that scripture bears out that the Lord wants us to prosper and to be in good health as our soul prospers and let me separate this because there's a difference between the prosperity health and wealth gospel and what I am going to communicate with you today Fundamentally, the difference has to do with, uh, I'm going to use this language, trust and benefactor. Now, a trust or a trust fund, and we establish these all the time. People, they leave a trust fund, and, and what it does is it's a vehicle that allows monies to be deposited into it over a period of years that allows it to gain interest so that when this when a person dies they can leave something into a trust fund that would allow for 
a certain amount of monies, whether, and I think there's different aspects of trust funds, but it allows that money to mature, but it allows it to be sent to their uh, beneficiary that they designated, either as an ongoing payment that goes over the life of the beneficiary or like a lump sum payment. There are different ways to set up trust funds in the vehicle. And it is primarily a monetary offloading of resources in the benefit of someone else. And I believe that there are certain tax advantages to it, and so these are set up so that they people can leave an inheritance to someone that they have deemed their beneficiary from from them. Now, there's a there's another understanding that Scripture employs when God speaks of Himself, and uh, in Genesis 15:1, the Lord is going to introduce Himself to Abram who now has, he's went through this thing with Lot where he has rescued him from Sodom and the king of Sodom wants to bless Abram for what he's done and Abram says that he won't take a shoe latchet or a thread from Sodom because he says no one's going to say that they made Abram rich. And after Abram makes this statement in the rescue of Lot in Genesis the Lord is going to come to him and he's going to say something that's very interesting. And what he says to him is, in Genesis 15, 1, he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said, Fear not, Abram. I am your benefactor. I am your reward or your shield. I am your protector. I am your benefactor. I, your reward will be very great. So, When the Lord comes to present his nature to Abram, he presents himself as a benefactor. Now, in in Hebraic culture and understanding, when you use the language benefactor, you have to differentiate that from a trust. Because a trust or a vehicle of trust is for the purpose for monetary gain only to the beneficiary. But when the language is used in Hebrew for benefactor, when God represents himself with this title, a benefactor, it means this. It means to gain the um, nature and the inheritance of the benefactor to the beneficiary. Now, what is different about the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel and the one that we're going to lay a foundation for today is when God the Father takes us on and says, I want to be your benefactor like he did Abram, After Abram had rejected the Sodomic system of that day, and he he had set it aside and said, you're not going to say that you made me rich. I will not be made rich out of a Sodom-like system that has its eyes towards that which is broken and covenant. When Abram makes that decision, now God says to him, I will be your benefactor. I will protect you. I will take care of you. I'm going to do something more for you than what you could ever have got out of Sodom and out of that economy and the basis of that non-covenantal system. I am going to make a covenant with you, and that's what's going to happen in Genesis 15. I'm going to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. And he's going to put Abram to sleep, but I'm going to impart my nature into you so that when I give you a blessing, and his blessing is going to be the seed 
that has been implanted into him to bring forth Isaac, to bring forth Jacob, ultimately the seed of Christ who's uh, going to come forth one day, the Son of God, you know, Jesus, who's going to come out of Abram's loins. I'm going to be to you a father, and I'm going to transmit on to you my nature. And so I'm not just going to give you your inheritance. I'm going to give you my nature as well. Now, I think many families and, and uh, dads and moms that deeply love their children you know, would want to give their nature to their children. They, they would want to bring them under discipline and train them and, and, and want them to get their nature because if they could, it, it would take a lot of pain out. You know, if I could just get through to my child and if I could just discipline them in a way where they could receive the nature that I'm walking in, then they would have my character. And with that character, my inheritance could come to them and I could know that they would handle it properly. And I don't think that many of you or even myself would not want that nature to be given. And so benefaction or a deep love is not just to have children, but it is to father them. And the heart of the father can come from both the dad and the mother so that they receive nature so they can come into an inheritance. Now, David's going to talk about this in Psalms chapter 17. And he says something that's really interesting because uh, what we're discussing today, and I'm going to start in verse 13, and David is saying, Arise. O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their offspring. Now, when the Holy Spirit just showed me this, it really, really just took me by surprise because David is saying that he has come under the wickedness, under this wickedness who has made their life, men who have made their own life, their portion would be in this life. That what they're trying to gain every day would be how I can get an economy that works out for right now. David says in the Psalms that it's wickedness, that that's all that you would focus on to get your portion in this life. It really struck me that that these men he's talking about, they have children. And then they're the ones who leave an abundance to their, their offspring. David says that in and of itself alone is wickedness. Because he, he goes on to say this, and, and I, it really bothered me when I read this, and the Lord took me to this because he said, there are so many people today that are living a life for the portion of this life. They have children, and they're wanting to leave an inheritance for them. But if they don't have this other component in their life, then I, and I think we saw a huge reaction to this out of the baby boomers, because many of the Woodstock era, and those kids rebelled against even the material blessings that were coming from their their uh, parental lines because a lot of in that case there was no relationship with the parent and you know listen to this as well as I do when you don't have a good relationship 
and your mom and dad are not taking interest in you, but they're all they're doing is paying attention to their portion in this life and to fill their own bellies and uh, to fill their children's bellies and to leave an inheritance. But without a relationship, uh, people and a lot of kids, they turn against it. They don't care how much money they're their dads and moms procure they wanted someone to spend time with them and invest in them and i think it's at the heart of all of us that we want we don't just want the trust fund we deeply long for benefaction someone who wants to have quality relationship with us and yes an inheritance and so listen to what david says as for me and he's differentiating between the man who gets his portion in his life, fills his own belly, has kids, and leaves an inheritance. And David's going to differentiate himself from that person. And he says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David was after something fundamentally different in his time. And it was beholding the face of God in righteousness so that the image would be imprinted onto his nature and that when he awakens that when his soul wakes up and i and i think this is fundamentally the the foundation of what happened in the great awakenings and what will happen again that i am only satisfied i'm not satiated by the material things of this world they do not satisfy me that deep, my deep satisfaction is to become like you. That out of you being in relationship with me and me being in relationship with you, then when you hand me an inheritance, I'm, it's in a total relationship with you. And I, I want to set, set that up today before we even go into this because, again, the prosperity gospel basically is preaching from a Jericho mentality of giving your first fruits away, but they're stuck at Achan's tent. And I, and I hope you can hear what I'm saying because Achan had went and, and he wanted a Babylonian garment. He took it out of Jericho under the... He was forbid to do that by the Lord, and he took gold and silver and he hid it under his tent. And so much of that gospel that's, that's a false gospel that's being presented... They're taking the principle of sowing and reaping, which is a biblical principle, and they're applying it on a trust fund mentality apart from relationship with a father, and they're using the principle in a wrong way. And if you know the story of Achan, God had the man stoned to death, his wife, his children, his cattle, and had a heap of stones piled on them because he had tried he had stolen what was rightfully the Lord's and he had placed the, uh, the gold and silver, which is a picture of idolatry, and he had got the Babylonian garment and not the free gift of God's Christ's righteousness, which is an act of adultery. And he had placed it under his tent. And he, in the place of idolatry, he should have took courage. In the place of adultery, he should have kept his devotion to what the word of the Lord is. And the prosperity movement, much of it, where it is going corrupt, it is it's chose the way of Achan. And, and I want to warn you against that, deeply warn you 
Because if it is not out of relationship with the Father, applying the principle of sowing and reaping will destroy your life. Because what happens is the principle works. It works on the just and the unjust. If you give, you sow, you will reap. And if you reap, like, and I'm going to go through this and show you this, it can bring power to your life. And that power can confuse you and your relationship with what you're doing and get you into a place of vainglory, get you into greed, get you into idolatry, get you into adultery. Because it's not how much you know. It's who you know. And it's Him knowing you that matters. When you see God seeing you, seeing Him, that's the greatest revelation that you're ever going to have. And... I can't say this enough as I introduce this material today that that principle used apart out of relationship with the Father principles I'm going to present today that that principle apart from relationship with the personhood of Jesus Christ and relating to him by Holy Spirit with the Father is damaging and has damaged so many people and I am not a proponent of it so with that being said Let's go in now and look at the principle that is, is a biblical principle from the Lord. The, um, and, and then I, I want to tell you some stories, that, uh, a few stories that have happened to our family and our processing in this. Uh, first of all, after this moment, I went to the Lord and he said, you don't give enough away to live like you do. I go back to the Lord and and he says, I, I really want to help you, son, in a number of areas. And I'm going to say that I believe that the Lord is wanting to help many of us in these areas. One is in the area of provision and relationship with the Father by covenant. And let me just quote this verse, Deuteronomy 8.18. It says, I give thee the power to get wealth so that I may establish covenant. So anything God does in regards to finance and operations of finance is for the purpose of covenant and, and what I mean is covenant being relationship with him and relationship with those that we love it's not to break covenant the word you know a lot of this movement is happening in the US right now the pride movement which is anti-covenantal and people think that that's going to help them financially end of the day it's going to break these businesses and it will destroy them. It is not uh, in the realm of covenant because the Lord will never bless it. it he, will, he will not do that. And I just to make that clear. Now, with this idea of covenant, the Lord said, you know, I want to I help my people out in their relationships. I want to help them out in their finances. And I want to help you out with your health. I want to uh, restore these three areas of your life and have you, you walk in this. But you're, you're going to have to do it my way. And one of the first principles that he started to teach me, and he literally spoke this to me because I am not, I'm not an economist and I don't have the language of an investor. And so he shared with me that I want you to understand something called return on investment. And so we call that, and you may understand this, is called ROI. So ROI is a, a performance measure that's used to evaluate the efficiency of an investment or compare the efficiency of a number of different in investments. What it does is it, it wants to directly measure the amount of return on a particular investment relative to the investment's cost. 
to calculate ROI, the benefit of return of an investment is divided by the cost of the investment. And here is the ROI. What you do is you take the current value of an investment minus the cost of the investment and divide that by the cost of the investment. And so what I began to understand, the Lord started to teach me the 30, the 60, and the 100-fold. And I, I started running analytics because I had a couple businessmen that started to give into our ministry. And I ran some analytics on their numbers, and we started to notice that they were getting a return on investment that was, within our ministry context, they were getting $9 for every dollar that they invested. You know, we ran numerous runs on this, and uh, I was kind of, you know, really surprised about this. And so I took this ROI formula and I ran it, and I found that there was a thousand percent what they were receiving was what you call a thousand percent return. And they got 900% of their investment because when you invest $1 and you get nine back, that's 900% as you run it through the ROI formula. And I had already been running these math formulas myself because i just be real honest with you. I was struggling in my own belief about this. And so I think the Lord just showed me the math and let me just run calculations on it. And I was noticing that in certain organizations that I was giving into, I was getting a 30-fold return. For every dollar I gave, I was getting two back. Now, let me put a caveat in here, and I'm going to give you a couple books if you want to read them. One is The Blessed Life by Robert Morris. And the second one is Purifying the Altar by Al Huffton. Now, let me place these two concepts in, in here because what Robert Morris teaches and I has exhibited in his life and in his ministry down in Texas he found that anything that was give above your 10%, he said that that was your protection. Excuse me. When you gave your tithe, that was your protection. Anything that you gave above that called an offering, that that offering was your the resources that would multiply and would be like an investment that would bring a return back into your into the economy of your home. And I was watching this myself. So I was running analytics on it, and I noticed... When we gave our 10%, it would protect our finances. But I noticed if I gave above that, where I was measuring this ROI was what I gave above my tithe, my offering, I was noticing I was getting a return back. And I'm a bit of a math guy, and so I noticed with certain organizations, I was getting $2 for every dollar I invested. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And this is when Al Huffton was introduced to me called the Purifying the Altar. And Al goes through this experience himself where he starts to realize that certain altars that you invest into are certain places or uh, ministries or nonprofits that he was getting a less return on his investment than he did in other ministries. And he talks about in there how that if the altar is pure within that ministry or nonprofit, if it was pure and that there wasn't corruption in it, that that above your tithe, he would see a a hundredfold return. Now, let me lay this out the best I can here. For 30-fold, what, what I found and discovered was for every dollar I invested in 30-fold, I'd get two back. In the 60-fold, for every dollar above tithe again that I invested 
in a 60-fold altar, I would get $5 back. And in the 100-fold ministry that I invested in, I would, for every dollar I invested, I'd get nine back above top. Now, I don't know about you, but the investment for the 100-fold became the one I wanted to invest in uh, because it's better to get $9 back for $1 than it is to get two back for $1. I mean, if any of us, common sense, if you place your money in an investment, you want to get as much back as you can out of your investment. I don't think Warren Buffett would just say, well, I feel bad for that person and I'm going to give them that money because I'm going to get a less return. I think that we as people know that we would seek out the best investment for what we put our time and our money into. And so once I found my hundredfold investment and I, the Lord had taught me in this, I decided that's where I'm going to place my resources above my tithes. This would be our offering. Uh, and I started to see a great increase in our economy and our resources from going through this principle. And we started, like I said, I, I not only ran this on myself, but I ran, I was allowed to look at a couple businesses and businessmen, we were able to run analytics on their companies and one of them being within our ministry and another one not being in our ministry so that we could see that the offering that was above tithe was legitimately uh, multiplying. So as you can imagine, after learning the return on investment, I was pretty excited and I was excited for, you know, teaching this and seeing a couple business guys giving in to the ministry. I started to see how the world was blessing them and I was happy for them because uh, they were able to take their businesses and really grow them and they were doing it from a principle of, of offering and they saw some dramatic increases in their bottom line and their revenues went up and could enjoy your life apart from just having to be uh, tied up with your work every day. That was really encouraging. Well, what it led me next to, and the Lord started to speak to me about this, was rate of return. Because as I was tracking it, I was noticing I was getting back, yes, these definitive returns, but I noticed that they were coming, at least for me, a lot of times they were coming approximately when I would make the initial investment, I would see the completion. I mean, down to the penny. It would, you know, be three to four months. I was step fast, like, in tracking these accounts. And I'm like, man, you know, if I could get the return, the rate of return down on this, then if, if you just imagine, for instance, and let me just try to give you a frame of the way I'm thinking. If, if today I invest a dollar and I receive nine dollars back, and let's say I received it a week later, and, but I had to spend a dollar of that every day. So I invested one dollar and nine dollars comes seven days later. That leaves me with how much money? Well, it leaves me with one dollar. Well, if I reinvest that dollar and I get nine back, then I run it another seven days. Excuse me, it leaves me with two dollars. So again, one dollar, seven days later, I get nine back. It leaves me with two dollars because I had to spend one dollar every day. That's called cash flow. Now the point is, is if I have to, if I invest one dollar and it takes me four months to get it back, then my cash flow exceeds what I get my return in, which creates discouragement in the giver. So just to start out with, if you've got to spread that $9 out over three to four months and you need $1 every day, I think you see the point that I think the reason why a lot of people don't give is because of the rate of return. They don't see it instantly. 
And they were like, well, I gave that money to the Lord and it was above our tithe. Why didn't the money come in right away? And if it doesn't, people get, again, you get discouraged and you think, well, the principle doesn't apply. Well, let me just say, I, I started to track this and I found it does apply. It always applies. God's word is true. Let God's word be true and every man be a liar. Whatsoever man sows, he will reap. The question is, is how long will it take him to reap it? And so, again, tracking this down, I started to notice that. Well, one day I'm like reading the word and it says, don't say four months and then the harvest. The harvest is now. And I, I recognize that this is in context of souls, but I believe that this harvest time also references not just that, but the harvest of uh, finance also. And the Lord spoke to me that, you know, you can get a return within one day. Well, I said to the Lord, I said, well, how, do, how does that work? Because I uh, would like to see the ROR shrink. I want to get my rate of return down so that if I invest above my tithe today, I'm going to see a return, let's say, in two days or one day. And what was really fascinating to me is a couple of the business guys that were given into our ministry, they, they were getting ROR sometimes within two to three days. And I'm, I'm talking, you know, bigger numbers where they would see a legitimate rate of return come in in a lot faster fashion. As long as the tithing was right, then the investment would come back and it would just clear up expenses for them in a really quick fashion. I was sort of fascinated with that because I noticed their ROR's were faster than mine. And I thought, Lord, why does that happen? He's like, well, it's the pain that and the suffering and the things that's going on in your ministry because I'm purifying your altar with such integrity because I'm going to create something for people one day that whenever they touch this ministry, I'm going to give them these returns and I'm going to restore to them two things, covenant, I'm going to heal their hearts, their families' hearts, and I am going to increase them beneficially, financially. And I said, Lord, that's amazing. He said, well, I will, in this ministry, only have the nature of being a benefactor. I will not allow this ministry to be set up like a trust fund. And, um, and I said, okay, Lord. And he says, because I'm going to create a clearinghouse with you. And I'm, I'm going to get into this clearinghouse in, in a minute, but this is a part of this, uh, what I'm wanting to get into today. And so after I started understanding ROR, and I understood ROI, again, ROI, return on investment, ROR, rate of return, and ROI being that which is above tide, that you would see an increase and in expansion in your income. Now, let me just say this because the ROI of the 30, 60, and 100 fold, it has nothing to do with your what you do like in work. This is what I believe is partly meant in Romans 4 is Paul's writing and he, he ends up referencing David and says, blessed is the man whom God credits his account apart from works. It's a blessed man who isn't laboring in something. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't labor and be about the work God's placed or assignment he's placed on us, whether in business or ministry or whatever field that he's placed us in. We should be uh, not lazy or given to slothfulness or whatever he's told us to do. But he said, blessed is the man who God credits his account. I agree that that is about righteousness and God giving the free gift of righteousness. But I saw this too, that God would credit our accounts 
like in a natural way because he's crediting you in righteousness as a benefactor, giving you his nature, but he's also crediting us with an inheritance, a blessing in the natural. He's a good father, so he credits our physical accounts. And I, I watched this, and I saw this myself. It is a blessed man whom God does that for. And so, well, Lord, let's shrink the ROR. What, what's it going to take? He said, well, I've got to go deep with you. I've got to peel off the layers of shame. I'm going to dig into stuff and because I want the foundation of all of this to be about my heart as Father. I want this ministry that I'm giving you to be represent me as Father so that when people touch it, when they touch it, their marriages are restored. Their children are restored to them. And I will bless their health. And I will bless their finances. And I said, Lord, you know, do that. And he said, go deep with me. Because I'm going to place my heart as father into this ministry to restore the children to me and restore the heart of the fathers to the children. And I, and I said, oh, okay, so let's go on, Lord. And I and became committed to this and committed to this path to a fault in, in a way. But, you know, and I say that just because no matter what happens, Lord, we're going to follow you and trust you because you have something you're wanting to do to be a great blessing to families because you love covenant. And let's go on, Lord, with you. And so I started then to learn about volatility. So he started to teach me on volatility and low and high volatility investing. And what I noticed was that low volatility investing, what that means is, is, okay, you have your return on investment. It's a guarantee. You have your rate of return. Well, you may not know when that rate of return is going to come it can be shrunk as you go deeper in Christ. And or whatever ministry you're giving into, if they're going deep in Christ and you give into that ministry above your tithes, you're going to probably get really quick a uh, rate of return. You're going to you're going to get a guaranteed return on investment with a quicker rate of return. But I also notice something about volatility and, and what happens in volatility is in a low volatility investment, what that means is the returns will come in intermittently, meaning that, let's say that in low volatility investing, you're going to get the full amount of the return in a said period of time. But in high volatility investment, you are going to get, let's say, you'll get 20% of it, and then you'll get like uh, 2%, and then you'll get like 30%, and then you'll get like 5%, and it'll come in like sporadically. And so, you're going to get 100% of your return on investment, but in low volatility investing, it's going to come in like as a lump sum. But in high volatility investing, it's going to come in sporadically. And so that can be very troubling for people because high volatility investing, you're like waiting and anticipating a way to offload your money so that you can deal with your cash flow issues. And if you don't know when it's going to come in, that can be difficult. And so if, if you just think about this in your mind, a lower rate of return gets you into more of a low volatility investing because the, uh, the time on it is shrunk. And so the volatility is also not as, as much as it would be if you have a, long, um, a longer rate of return. Now, so I'm going through all this training with the Lord and uh, development. I'm going to end up unpacking this in even more precise detail. It'll end up coming out in 
phase three. I'm just telling stories right now called phase double O, just the stories of our family, but this will be very particularly unpacked in phase three, which is called building a philanthropic base. And I'm going to teach these slower. You'll have the scripture references to go with them. And I just want to say that I'm covering a lot of material in a short amount of time so that you're just not overly consumed because I've got to get to the end of what the reason is of why I'm in this moment with you concerning this. So back to the clearinghouse. So the Lord said, you know, I'm going to make you a clearinghouse and I'm going to make this ministry a clearinghouse. And, you know, I had to look up what he meant and I'm going to go through where the clearinghouse came from, clearinghouse concept, and then we're going to dig into something that I believe is even more profound, even though the hundredfold is so profound, called the thousandfold. All right, the clearinghouse is a banking association and payments company that is owned by the largest commercial banks, and it dates back to 1853. The clearinghouse payments company, LLC, owns and operates core payment system infrastructure in the U.S., is currently working to modernize that infrastructure by launching a new ubiquitous real-time payment system. The payments company is the only private sector automated clearinghouse or what we call ACH transactions and wire operator in the United States. It's clearing and settling near, nearly two trillion in each US dollar payments each day. And it's representing half of all commercial ACH and wire volume. It is focused on safety, security, reliability, and efficiency of bank-owned payment systems and has a long history of operational resilience. It's maintained operations without interruption through every financial crisis and natural and man-made disaster since 1853. The Clearinghouse provides a place to foster industry collaboration and development where industry coordination is necessary. Beginning with the first U.S. check exchanges, the company has brought together banks to collaborate on key issues, including needs for the next generation of payment systems. Supporting services include those offered by the Clearinghouse Payments Authority, a payments association with a thousand financial institution members and corporate subscribers and those offered, which include check education, check advocacy, and the creation and maintenance of rules that govern the private sector check image exchange for its members. In addition to its role as an operator, the Clearinghouse provides thought leadership to the banking industry and it engages with decision makers, conducts research, provides expertise to guide the evolution of public understanding. Now, I want to just give like a little bit of background because of what's happening uh, with the Clearinghouse and what I believe the Lord may have been saying to us as a ministry. Now, just to start out with, I, I think you can hear from this that, that there are two different kinds of economic systems that are in operation. There's one, we would call it a kingdom economy, and then there's this world's economic system. And I'm using the world economic system to talk to you from a framework, even historically, and how it works, but I'm also giving you what I've been learning on economics myself in relationship to Scripture. Uh, because I believe that these two economies are going to basically clash in the end times, the Melchizedek order and the New World order. And one is going to have an Antichrist system, a cashless system, and we that are a part of the order of Melchizedek are going to need to be made ready uh, for 
this cashless system that is end up going to not allow us to buy and sell. So we're going to have to be prepared uh, to come off of that system. And I think the Lord is preparing many of us to come apart from that system to operate in the a kingdom economy system that Jesus himself was operating in. Back to the history. In 1907, the stock market and world markets crashed, spurred largely by huge insurance company losses after the San Francisco fire of 1906. Led by J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller, the clearinghouse stepped in by lending money to banks, to the stock exchange, and to the city of New York until the panic subsided. Not long after this great panic, the Federal Reserve was formed and the clearinghouse's role evolved to become a proactive resource to promote common interests and help shape the U.S. banking industry. And when the outbreak of World War I paralyzed international exchange, the clearinghouse banks took the lead to restore the nation's foreign exchange position. The clearinghouse banks stood steadfast through the Great Depression from 31 to 34. When 8,000 U.S. banks failed, only one clearinghouse bank was lost. And during World War II, the clearinghouse banks promoted the sale of war bonds. Now, I just got to say this, and you really got to go in and know your history, but when J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller stepped in back in 1907 during the stock market, world markets crashing because of these huge insurance company losses, these guys are consummate businessmen. And so you have to understand, you know, what what's happening with J.P. Morgan here and John D. Rockefeller. Morgan in the banking system and Rockefeller in oil. These guys, yes, are coming in to supposedly rescue the U.S. economy and, and stop us having a big financial crash, but they did this to pad their own pockets and to begin to prepare to basically strip the nation of its wealth. And you've got to look into this in your history. Now, these titans, they're going to end up building the foundation of America. They're going to lay in. You're going to see Carnegie Steel come online. You're going to see Morgan bring the oil in. And they're going to become these great monopolists and monopolize the economy uh, for their, their own sake. And now, I can't go into all the details on this, but... I can say this for sure that these guys were not just led by benevolence to rescue our nation. They they saw it as a way to buy low and gain off the backs of the American the American people. Well, you know, again, there are completely two different ideologies in operation here. One is I'm going to take in all of what has failed for people and absorb that wealth into my own pocket. And then there's this understanding of, of our Lord who com- does the complete, utter opposite of that. And so when you bring something to the Lord as a king, he's a king that you will never outgive. These guys were kings, in a sense, that want to take everything from everybody and absorb it into themselves, and I'm sorry, it's your own loss, by bailing out these banks. And I, I think that everybody knows, and they've seen enough on TV and everything, how corrupt this entire thing is. And it's resulted into a lot of people even have a loss today, and, and our nation isn't booming like it once did. And now the nation's in multiple trillions of dollars in debt. 
And so with that being said, when the Lord shared with me that uh, that he was going to create a ministry in the, in the United States of America that would end up being a clearinghouse for others, that when you touch it just with the least amount, that I'm going to cause it to be a huge blessing out of that. When you touch something above tithes, I'm going to give you an ROR, a quick rate of return. You're going to get an ROI uh, that is going to be a high percentage yield and that if you touch this, that is going to be a, a huge blessing for families in regards, again, to their covenant, in regards to their finances, and to their health. And what was interesting for me in the middle of all this and going through the tra- trials with it is our ministry continues to shrink in size and scope, and the giving can, keeps it going down. I'm thinking that just if a few people just got this and really believed it, it would just tremendously bless their families because the Lord had arranged something here to be a blessing for other people. They, he had created this clearinghouse. So I have this encounter uh, with the Lord. He, he had shared this with me, and then he said, he said to me, I'm going to light the world up with this new economy, and I'm going to uh, like... J.P. Morgan, I'm going to invest into this house to make a change, to prepare for a change for the world. Now, what happens with J.P. Morgan is he ends up investing in Edison, Thomas Edison, and Edison General Electric, and and Edison uh, lights up the world with light. And and as you know, many households have been, you know, their light had come from John D. Rockefeller's oil, and Edison needs an investor to help him with his company, General Electric. And J.P. Morgan ends up being that investor. And the Lord spoke to me and he says, like it is with J.P. was with J.P. Morgan, but in a complete opposite way, I'm going to invest in the Melchizedek Order because I'm going to light the world up with my economy. And I want you, son, to be faithful with this because like I said, to you, I'm going to build an automated clearinghouse. I'm going to build a clearinghouse, but it's not going to be a clearinghouse like the world's clearinghouse. It's going to be one that requires faith. And that when you touch this bank or this clearinghouse, I'm going to heal the relationships, restore them covenantally to me, heal their health, and bless them financially. I mean, personally, I was really excited about it, and I tried to tell everybody, but you know, I really wasn't getting much uh, what I thought would happen because people, if you automatically tell them that and they don't see this caveat that I'm building for you today, that they hold you in suspect because they're like, oh, here comes another one of those prosperity preachers. And I'm like, no, that is not what I'm saying. Um, I am not trying to promote uh, that false prosperity gospel. But just because the enemy has corrupted something doesn't mean there's not truth in a relationship with the Father in regards to restoring us and our families, our health, and our finances. Now, with that being said, so the Lord has spoke this to me. He's like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to create this clearinghouse, and I have this encounter with him about that. Well, I get this phone call by uh, a local Gideon. His name is Bob Machen, and he would frequently like call us and they invite us over for these wonderful meals at the Gideon banquets and I don't know if you've ever been to one but um, they invite these businessmen and the pastors and they feed the pastors and they 
they come into our churches so that they can recruit the businessmen within the churches to spread the word of God around around the world. Bob Machen, he just he's he's a wonderful man, and he had been calling me uh, quite a bit. Now I didn't have but like a few men left in the ministry, and I told him I said, you know, Bob, because what they do is they send in a speaker to recruit. And I said, you know, our, our ministry uh, has shrunk, and I don't have a lot of men, and I just don't think it's a good idea to send your guy in because as much as we want to support you, uh, the few men that I have left, I think that they either have already volunteered or I just don't know that it's going to be beneficial for, for your ministry, and I want to be a blessing to the Gideons. Uh, but I don't know that we're in the place right now to support that. Well, God love Bob. He is one persistent fella. And he's like, I need you to allow someone to come in because they they have standards that they have to meet. And I need you to allow this guy to come in to speak. And I said, you know what, Bob? Okay. I was like, I've got a bunch of ladies there and i got a few men. But he said, just allow them to come in and do their Sunday morning briefing. He said, And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So I get a phone call from the man who's going to come in and speak and uh, get on the phone with him and... Um, he said, is this, uh, is this Pastor Carroll? And I said, yes, it is. He says, um, well, I, uh, my name's J.P. Morgan. And I was like, what did you say your name is? Now, you got to understand, I just had this encounter with the Lord two or three days before J.P. Morgan calls me. He said, my name's J.P. Morgan. He's like, um, I'm going to be the one to come in and speak it on behalf of uh, the Gideons for your ministry. And I, I just want to say that Usually speaking, I've found this, that where I find resistance usually is an encounter on the other side of that. I'm not saying that for everybody, but I really resisted Bob on this. And Bob just kept putting pressure on me that I needed to bring this guy in. And so, you know, I finally relented. Uh, and and uh, so his name's J.P. Morgan. I'm sitting there just scratching my head. And I said, I said J.P., yes, uh, this is a time of our meeting on Sunday. You're welcome to come in. And uh, he comes in that Sunday, does a wonderful speech. Um, we don't get any recruits. And I think we had maybe a hundred something dollars to hand to him. And I just, you know, kind of felt bad. But I was just like, Lord, you obviously are like speaking to me about this. And he's like, yes, I, you know, I've, I've shown you this. And it became clear to me that the Lord was saying, I'm telling you, I'm setting up a financial clearinghouse and a blessing for my people covenantally and for their health. I'm going to do this with this ministry. Well, it was right after that that I uh, started having encounters with the Lord, and I get my, my eyes on these um, these boots, and I want a pair of them. And they're, um, they're made by Wolverine, and they come out of the late 1800s, but they're, they're fairly expensive shoes. Not $2,000 shoes. But, you know, under $500, around $500, and, uh, and I just want a pair, and they're called the thousand, they're called thousand Mile Boots. And Wolverine put this boot out, and an American working man was wearing them for years, and they have lasted all the way up until our time, and, and I asked the Lord for a pair. And a good friend, and Ray Fisher, he came up to me, and he blessed me with the funds, and he said, uh, Pastor Carroll, you'll get you... Those boots that you want, I just feel impressed with the Lord to buy them for you. And, and I thought, man, what, what are you trying to say? Years ago, one of our, our lead elders, his name was Kenneth Rash, he had, we had done a meeting, and he 
came up after the meeting and looked at me. He says, uh, he said, you know, your shoes are too tight. And I said, no, they're not. I mean, what are you talking about? And he just smiled at me. And Ken's in his 80s, a awesome man. And he just, he said, no, uh, Carol, he said, your shoes are too tight. And I said, I don't think my shoes are too tight. He's like, Carol, I'm speaking metaphorically. And I'm like, oh, okay, Ken. And he said, um, you're, what you're walking in is way bigger than, than the place that you're in right now. And, of course, I have this whole understanding from the Lord that you should be faithful in small things and that the Lord is processing through humility and that, you know, so what Ken was saying, well, when I got my new shoes, these thousand-mile shoes, I, uh, I thought that maybe the Lord is speaking prophetically about something. And so the Lord started to speak to me about the thousand-fold. And now when Peter came to the Lord, he said something to him. He said, Lord, we left all to follow you. And what's in it for us is basically what he was saying because Peter had left his, his job, his vocation as a fisherman, and it went on this journey to follow the Lord. And we know, because Paul says that Peter had a wife. And so you don't just leave all and have a wife and follow the Lord, and you'll have a way to provide. And the Lord says to him, he says, you've not left anything that you'll not receive a hundredfold. Then he goes on to say houses and lands and family members. And in this life, he says, with persecution and in the life to come. And so the Lord gives him a, this guaranteed rate of return that you're going to get a hundredfold return. You know, for every denarii you invest with me, you're going to get none back. You know, you're going to get a hundredfold return. Yes, you're going to get persecution. But you're not going to just get it in this life. You're going to get it in the life to come. And so because I, I've seen and talked to a lot of people, and people have this sort of understanding that, I'm just going to wait till glory and my blessing is there. And then you've got a, people that all they think about is now and getting their blessing now. And I believe that Jesus is telling us clearly here to Peter, I'm going to bless you now with persecution and in the life to come. And I, I don't think that we should be, especially when you're coming into leaving everything, your vocation as Peter was and all the other disciples, uh, except later on Paul, uh, who's going to be a tent maker? I don't think you should. You shouldn't have some kind of hope in the way that you're going to uh, tend to the needs of your family. And so, so I had received these new thousand mile boots, and the word starts to open up to me. Really, what I've been going through uh, today to prepare us to get to this point, uh, because I wanted to discuss with you something and hopefully provide something for you the way I was taught by the word about the thousandfold because I believe in this end time when we get to this place where the new world order starts to come online and eventually after the Antichrist has been in power for three and a half years they're going to implement the mark and so many people you know they're not going to be able to buy and sell and there's going to have to be preparation ahead of that with preparation ministries that have gone ahead in this area and have been developed by the word so that when someone touches that ministry there can be an expansion of blessing over a larger group of people and i believe that jesus himself operated in what we would call the thousandfold and you find this story of the lord in uh, mark's gospel uh, chapter number six verse 30 through 44 and, and i'm going to read this to you because uh, it's necessary to, to lay the foundation for this 
So the apostles have returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, I think that this is in reference, not that it's just being said here, but to right before the second coming, that you have the abomination of desolation that's going to happen. It's going to be a desolate place for many all over the world. And it says, and the hour is now late. The lateness of the hour, and in this case, they probably are getting more towards the evening. They're experiencing that this is not a place where we can get food. There's not a McDonald's. You know, there's not there's not a Zaxby's, there's not a Burger King, there's not a O'Charlie's. There's not a place for us to send them to go get their food. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And they're saying, hey, we got to send them over to get their food somewhere else to get something to eat. But the Lord says something really interesting. He says, you give them something to eat. Now, this is the story of feeding the 5,000. And when they count the heads, they count the heads of their home. And so this is 5,000 men. So if these men have wives and they're not single, that would be the equivalent of another 5,000 women, which is approximately 10,000 men and women. And on average, families have approximately two children. So if you were to just run averages, uh, you would have approximately 20,000 people here in a desolate place and they have nothing to eat, it's desolate, the hour is late, it's in the evening, and the disciples are like, listen, we're hungry, they're hungry, we got to get these people fed. And then the Lord says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they found, said, Well, we have five loaves and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So Jesus has told them to feed. They're saying it would cost us two hundred denarii to feed these people. Well, obviously Jesus was able to multiply bread and fish, but he also says something interesting. He tells them, you feed them. So Something about Jesus, I believe, is implying or saying directly or giving them a command that you have the ability to feed all these people as well as I do. Because I want to separate that right now or make that clear because many people say, well, yeah, Jesus can do that, but that doesn't mean I can. Well, according to the word of the Lord here, the Lord seems to think that they can too. 
because he gave them a command to do it. And then he says, basically, they say, well, we have to have a certain amount of money to be able to do this, and they brought up 200 denarii. Now, I ended up, the Lord took me through this, how he provides in the wilderness, and he gave me some math on this, and I want to share this with you. Now, the first thing the Lord said to me is, I want you to take the national average wage after taxes for a skilled tradesman in uh, your day, which was, is approximately $18 an hour in our, our time. And if a man worked 18 hours on a 40-hour week, that would equate to, this is after taxes, that would equate to $720 a week pay. That is the equivalent of $37,440 a year. And that would be approximately the national wage average in the United States of America right now. Now, for, for a skilled tradesman, what that equates to is approximately $144 a day. And that would equal, $144 a day would equal one denarii. Because I, I had to go find what the equivalent of one denarii is. And one denarii equates to $144 a day. So when they said 200 denarii, they probably have that much on them between the 12 of them. Because where would they get the 200 denarii to go purchase the loaves of bread? So 200 denarii in our economy equates to $28,800. So these guys are carrying approximately, between themselves, the 12 of them, they're carrying approximately $28,800 that they've come up with that they're holding on their own persons to feed them. Now, they're probably not happy, first of all, with the Lord about telling them that you go feed them and to take their money that they they have between themselves and go feed who me. These other people have their own money. I don't want to go and feed them. So, But that's about how much we have. Now, what I did is I found out that if an average meal cost us today $7.20 to have an average meal, that would equate to you could get uh, for 200 denarii, you could get 4,000 meals. So even with 200 denarii, the most that they could buy would be the equivalent of 4,000 meals. So with 20,000 people, is 4,000 meals going to be sufficient? No. So all of what these guys can bring to the plate, their $28,800 in today's money, which is 200 denarii, 200 denarii would be the approximation of 4,000 meals at an average meal costing $7.20. To feed 4,000 meals, it takes 12 men, 17 days of work combined without caring for their own families to provide enough meals for 4,000 men. So that's what they have the equivalent of workload on them. They have the equivalent of 17 days of work. Each man would have to work 17 days to just provide 4,000 meals, which is still 16,000 meals short of meeting the need that Jesus is talking about. And you can understand why the disciples are like, dude, what are you talking about? We can't do this. And we each of one of us have had to work 17 days. We don't even take care of one bill. We don't take care of our own families just to feed 4,000 of these people. 
So when Jesus tells them, you feed them, this is what's going through their mind. Because they're just like we are. How am I going to do that? But they are, again, to feed approximately 20,000 people. Now, what does it take? According to this math, what I found out is it takes 1,000 days. This was really interesting to me. But it takes 1,000 days of work to provide meals for 20,000 people. Now, the Holy Spirit had to show me this because it takes a combination of 1,000 days. So what does that mean? It would take 12 men 83.3 days of work apiece without having nothing left over for themselves and their families to work because 83.3 times 12 men equals 1,000 days. And a thousand days is 2.74 year years of work. It would take these men, 12 of them, they would have to work 2.74 years to be able to provide for what was needed in that moment. Now, I really want you to get a hold of this because when Jesus says you feed them, if any of them like are doing any kind of math, they're like, dude, a thousand days, that's 2.75 years combined of work for us to be able to get this. It's going to require each one of us 83.3 days of work. So what's saying there is they would have to work over two and a half months apiece at $18 an hour to provide enough for that moment in a desolate place. And now you know, if you hear what I'm saying, that this is impossible. And Jesus is saying, you do it. Now, when I read this, the Lord spoke to me and he said, when I talk to you about a clearinghouse, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that I want a ministry on the earth that when someone touches it like this, that you look up to me in the heavens and you thank me and bless me and I multiply enough to feed 20,000 people in one minute. So what does Jesus do? He's one man. He needs 20,000 meals. One man's going to feed 20,000 people off of a boy's box lunch that would normally take 1,000 days to afford to buy. He's going to do all of that out of one thanksgiving to his father off of a boy's one meal. This is the thousandfold principle that Jesus operated in, and it is a 10,000% return on investment. Jesus got 10,000% return because see he's the son of the father and there's no sin in him so that whenever Jesus looks to the father and thanks him he has a 10,000% return remember when Jesus is on the cross and they said come down from there and what does he say I could call down 10,000 legion of angels I could call them down right now but the thing that was so remarkable about Jesus he never would move off of the relationship with his father because it says he only did what he saw his father doing. And because of that, the father trusted him as a steward to bring forth wealth. So, so uh, Jesus could operate in this thousandfold principle. Now you might say, okay, so it, took a, it would take a thousand days of work. One man did that in one moment. Jesus doesn't have to go do a thousand days of work like all the other guys think that they have to do. He can do this in a moment, and he's telling them, you can too. 
He's telling us, and I believe he is sharing this with me when it's J.P. Morgan and the clearing tower, I'm going to have a ministry that can walk on eyes on the Father, that only looks at me, that can multiply this kind of provision in the end times because there's coming a day when we're going to need to walk in this anointing, in this, in this principle. Now, he can't just go around because think about this. Let me just give it to you this way. Think that you could go put $1 in an offering and you get 99 back in a moment. Do you know the kind of power that would be? That's a 10,000, it's a 9,000% return, but including your initial investment, that's 10,000%. Could you imagine what kind of power would be on that if someone could come touch that offering and get $99 back? That's what was happening with Jesus. When you touch him, you get an instant miracle. When you touch him, he gives free health care and free food. He just wants a relationship. When they come to him, they said to him, they said, what works would you have us to do? They are asking him about work. And he said, this is the work I have for you, that you believe on the one whom he has sent. Jesus is like, just believe in me and place your whole trust in me. This is all in John 6. Later on, he's going to go into the temple and he's going to offend everybody because he's going to say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I want you to, I want you to come into deep communion and relationship with me. I want you to abide in me and let my words abide in you. And you can ask anything in my name and it will be done. Jesus wants deep abiding, this benefaction, communion with us. Well, you may ask, uh, well, where is this at? else in the Bible is there we've discovered this and if you can see this the math on this uh, it's in it's in John 6 the math is there it's a mathematical thing that you can look at but look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 uh, verse 11 when he's appointing leadership he said in verse 9 at that time I said to you I am not able to bear you by myself Moses talking and the Lord God has multiplied you and behold you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven and he says this, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. I can't bear the, by myself the weight and burden of all of you and your strife. And so they, they're going to choose it for your tribes, wise, understand, experienced men to appoint them as your heads. Uh, the other place in the scripture is in Song of Psalms, chapter number 8. And it, it speaks here. In verse 11, 8 11, it says, Solomon had a vineyard at Balhamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have your thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. And so this that Solomon is operating under, I believe, is a thousand fold. Now, when I was looking at this, I had to study what Balhamon means, and Bal means Lord, but the Hammon means of the city, or it means this, it means father of a multitude. So Solomon has a vineyard called father of a multitude. Now, I don't know if you know where else in the Bible that father of a multitude is spoken, but it's when in Genesis 17... Abram and Sarah's names are going to be changed and Abram is going to receive a, a new name and his name is going to go from high father 
to father of a multitude. And Abram is going to be known as the father of faith or the father of what? Many nations. And so Abram was being shifted by the Lord through his adversity and trials with Sarah. They're going through these trials together because God is going to take his high father developmental process that he's in through the Genesis narrative and then he's going to turn him into father of a multitude and that this father of a multitude is directly connected to the thousandfold and he's going to receive this from a national father which is high father and he's, he's going to move into another covenantal aspect so Genesis 15 that we talked about at the very beginning it deals on a national level but Abram is going to go to an international level and be called father of a multitude in Genesis 17. And then he's, he's going to be put to trial by the Lord to test his heart in Genesis 22 with his own son Isaac. And that when he passes these three, there are three oath rites or three circumcision rites, he's going to be made ready as father of a multitude that out of his loins will end up coming the Lord himself and it calls him and Paul will call him heir of the world and so he's went from a national level airship to an international level airship and then he's tested with Isaac his, his promise to see if he will um, kill his own son it's a picture of what's going to happen with the Lord one day with the father and you know there's so many more eloquent people than me that can wax and do so much better but I need to present to you today that there is in scripture a thousandfold and that I believe that in these end times and I just recently sat down with an economist who's in commercial lending and banking and you know what he said to me he said Carol he said we have no formula there are no models that we can predict what is about to happen he said, I can tell you of a truth. And I started to share, not the thousandfold with him, but just some of these principles. And he's shaking his head. He said, it's going to be that which you're talking about that's going to sustain God's people in the end times. We're going to need this end time economy, these clearinghouses, uh, to be established in the earth in this end time because without this, and without the Lord giving these preparation ministries to help us prepare for, get this, what the millennial reign the thousand year reign that we're in preparation to transfer over two competing complete different ideologies one is you touch this with your resources and i'll not just take that i'll take more i'm going to take your families i'm going to mark you i'm going to destroy your self-worth i'm going to destroy your wealth i'm going to destroy your health the Antichrist system will be completely built on the destruction of humanity. But the kingdom of God, the Melchizedek order, when you touch that, when you touch the offerings of the Lord and you start to touch and you begin to give yourself to the Lord in this way, I'm going to give you your families back. I'm going to repair and restore uh, your relationships. Father, mother, husband, wife, grandparents, I'm going to restore your children back to you. I'm going to give you back that which has been painful for you that through the years that you've not been able to reconcile with. I'm going to set up uh, proper relationships for your extended families. And not just that, I'm going to bless you financially. I'm going to help you with your needs and, and promote 
uh, promote you and help you uh, with your business initiatives and everything. But you've got to do this in accordance to covenant. Don't give in right now to the to just to just a works-based mentality. Many of you, yes, yes, you get what you're due because you work for it. But you need something more than what your uh, trade, many of you are into trades and into the skilled labor sector and you work with your hands beautifully and you've got a real gift for that. And, and many of you, you're using your minds and you're in a lot of the white collar fields and, and we're not here to like bring competition between those. They're both needed to in economy and in the world. I'm not trying to uh, diminish either one of those, whether you work with your minds or whether you work with your hands. But... You don't want to get just what you're due. You want to you want to get and not just live for this portion in this life. You want to be like David that says, "When I awaken one day, I'm I'm going to set my heart to behold you in righteousness. And when I wake up, I will look like your likeness. I want your image, Lord. I want your likeness. I crave that more than the beneficiary aspects of uh, even my own uh, personal finances." I'm not going to put my own belly, my children's bellies, my spouse before you, Lord. I'm not going to be an Esau. I, I want to have a heart, Lord, for you. And I'm just going to pray with you in, in this end that you would pray for us in this ministry that I believe that will mark this end time and that many other ministries that are being raised up by the Lord right now that will end up being places of refuge for people because there will be a multiplication that will come out of these ministries to take care of you that that we can be promised of that and i just want to bless you to renew your heart and mind that don't just get what you can earn in this hour do something beyond your earnings uh, walk into another dimension and let the lord speak over your life and and say over you like it says in romans 4 blessed is the man whom god credits his account apart from works let's not try to find our identity in our work let's find our identity in christ and let him bless us and our families and restore our marriages, restore our health, and restore our finances. Jesus, we just come to you right now and pray for everyone under the sound of my voice that if there's a need of renewal, Lord, of faith to take courage and be devoted to you, I just ask you right now that we would take courage. And we wouldn't base this off our, our fixed incomes, Lord, that we wouldn't base it off what we can do, but where we just move out and trust you. I pray that it would be just a revelation that only you can give to each one word that's listening right now. I pray you reveal to them what is necessary in this hour. Prepare their hearts, God. And hear where they're at, Lord. There's many people that are struggling in their families, and maybe the marriage is struggling. Lord, help them to take courage. Maybe their um, health is struggling. Give them courage, Lord. And maybe their finances are struggling. Give them courage to trust you. Lord, I thank you for creating clearinghouses I thank you. I can't speak for everyone else, but I thank you for this ministry. I thank you that it be a clearinghouse to be a blessing, Lord, in these three areas, Lord, the three areas that we're generally speaking, every one of us are dealing with right now, and then we're thinking about it: our family, our finances, our freedom, Lord, and our health. Where we just ask you and, and bless you, Lord. Pray that we would walk in the shoes that you would have us to walk in. In your name, we pray. Amen. Yeah.
And our eyes have been on 